from Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Is it okay if I put this down? Don't know why it's up here. Um, 25:31. And when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will (coughs) answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of these least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. God, I again just... um, Thank you for what you have given us here of your word, a revelation of yourself and of your ways. I pray that we would not exalt ourselves, God, above your word, but that we would submit ourselves to all that you have said, that we would bring ourselves in that rightful place of being under you, surrendered to you, laying before you, God, our own thoughts, that we might have your thoughts and be submissive, God, to you, your will, and your ways. So, God, we pray for your ministry to us, um, that you would be richly honored and glorified in each of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I um, had already planned on Jerry Benjamin preaching last Sunday, so appreciate him doing that. And it was um, providential because the Lord knew that Patsy and I and our kids would be um, called away because Patsy's mom passed away um, suddenly last week. And so we were up in Pennsylvania over the weekend for her funeral. Patsy was already made plans to be up there, so she was was there, and then we joined her. So it was a quick trip, flew up Saturday and came back um, Monday. Um, This is the fall that we're coming into is a busy time for all of us, and, and I'm no exception to that. And um, we have, um, with different events and things going on at His Hill, 
um, two guest speakers coming in that we want to have preach here. They've preached here in the past. Satish John from India. Um, he is um, the national director for our torchbearer work in India. Uh, remarkable um, brother in Christ, and he's um, also the chairman of the executive committee for torchbearers. And so he'll be preaching for me the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And then the Sunday after Thanksgiving, Peter Reed, who's the general director for Torchbearers, will be preaching. Um, and then I'm also gone next Sunday, and, and um, Connor will be filling in for me. I have meetings that I have to be at in Colorado um, for Torchbearers. So I appreciate each of these men, just godly men, um, who I'm absolutely confident will lead us to Christ and handle the Word accurately, and it's a privilege having um, them here. Um, two Sundays ago, we were looking at the um, coming of Christ prior to um, His millennial reign to establish His kingdom, and it's the end of the tribulation that He comes physically to the earth once again. And we saw at the end of chapter 24 and through chapter 25 to verse 30 that Jesus is preparing the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, for that return. Very significant that he starts with them. This Olivet Discourse is focused from beginning to end on them. And he wants them to not miss the next day of their visitation. Because they missed the first one. And so he's concerned that they would miss the second time that he comes. Not that they would be oblivious to it, but that they would not be ready and alert for it. And so he's giving these parables as a warning to them. They need to be, as a nation, ready and alert for his second coming to the earth. The way to be ready and alert is to place your faith in him. Now that applies to Israel. And it also applies to all, all people. The way to be ready and alert, to be with the Lord in heaven, to be prepared for when He comes again, is to place your faith in Jesus alone for salvation. Works of whatever magnitude will not prepare you for that coming. You will be found ashamed and, and in your sin if you are depending upon good works However many, however great, if that is your trust, then you will not be found ready when Christ comes. Because the only thing He's looking for is faith. When the Son of Man comes to the earth, will He find faith? That is what He's looking for. It is the only thing. So all of these parables, these three parables, are about the essential character of faith, the one thing to prepare us for Christ's return. So I'm, I'm going back and forth between application for us and this being a message for Israel for when Jesus um, comes back at the end of the tribulation. We will not be there. But nonetheless, the message that God gives to us is the same as that for the church, as that for Israel, and that is to be ready and alert for His coming. And faith is the only thing that He's looking for. Having addressed Israel, he now addresses the nations of the world, all the Gentiles that are on the earth still after the tribulation. Um, nobody likes pop 
quizzes. I remember the different classes I had um, where the professor would say at the very beginning of the semester, there will be an occasional pop quiz. And you hated those times when you walk into class and sure enough, the professor says, put away your books, get out a piece of paper, pop quiz time. And you can just groans all over the room. If we'd been older, there would have been heart, heart attacks all over the room. You hate the thought because you know, am I, am I ready? Am I going to fail this thing? And we, there's no need for any person to not be ready. This is not a pop quiz. We do not know the day or hour, but we can be ready. I remember the story of a preaching class, and one of the modules in the preaching class was on extemporaneous preaching. And that was the one module that all these budding um, seminarian students, budding preachers, dreaded the most. Is you know They were going to be called upon just to give a, a completely spontaneous, extemporaneous speech. And sure enough, this one guy sitting in the back of the room, dreading the day that he'd be called, hoping that the prof- professor wouldn't even see him, and he pointed him out in the back of the room and said, you're on. Preach on Zacharias. I'm Zacchaeus. Preach on Zacchaeus. And so he only had enough time from between he was standing in the back of the room to walking to the front of the room to prepare his sermon and to preach on Zacchaeus. What do you say? Scared to death. And he said, these are my three points. Zacchaeus was a man who wanted to see God. And so do I. Zacchaeus was a little man, and so am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree, and so am I. (laughs) Now that's a funny story, but we don't need, no person needs to be found up a tree at the return of Jesus. He is laying out for us how to be ready. And I'll just say it again, it is simply through faith in Jesus Christ. We trust Him alone to do for us that which we could never do for ourselves, and that is to save us from our sin and to grant us eternal life. So this portion in verse 31 begins with Jesus gathering all the nations to Him. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, what a day that will be, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne a place of judgment, and all the nations will be gathered before him. Now, typically, not 100% of the time, but the vast majority of the time, all the nations, that phrase is a reference to all the Gentile nations. Typically not a reference to Israel. Sometimes Israel's included. Often they are not. And in this instance, I think they are not included because they were mentioned in the three parables prior to this. So this is a a judgment on all the nations. The timing is very important here. This is not at the end of the millennium. This is before the millennium begins. This is not a judgment on the dead who have been raised to life, but this is a judgment on the living, those who are still alive when Jesus comes again. And they will all stand before His throne, the the throne of Jesus. This is not the great white throne judgment, 
where we will stand, not we, but those who have died without placing their faith in Christ will, will stand before God the Father. So if you'll just turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, and I, we want to just note some of the distinctions between these two judgments. So this is <coughs> Matthew 25, 31 is not the final judgment. It is the judgment of the Gentiles who are alive on earth after the tribulation. But in Revelation 20, we have described the great white throne judgment, which is the final judgment. In verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead. You see, that's one of the distinctions between this judgment and the Matthew 25 judgment. Matthew 25, they are alive. Revelation 20, they are the dead who have been raised to life. The great and small standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name who is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there seem to be two books that are being examined here. The first book, the book of life. And only those standing before the great white throne Will, have, will be people whose names are not in the book of life. So these are unbelievers, not believers. And they will stand before the throne as unbelievers, and another book will be opened, and that will be the book of everything they ever did. And they will be judged individually according to what they did, which tells us that there are degrees of punishment. Not all people will experience the same punishment. All unbelievers will end up in the lake of fire, but they will not experience the same punishment. That's why he is individually judging each one according to their deeds. So this is the final judgment, and only unbelievers stand before him. In Matthew 25, it is not the final judgment. It is the judgment at the end of the tribulation prior to the millennium, and all the people standing before him are all the Gentile nations, and they are not dead, they are alive, and there are both believers and unbelievers standing before him. So he's going to now call out and the believers from the unbelievers. He will make a separation between them. No separation between believer and unbeliever takes place at the great white throne judgment. It is only unbelievers then. So back to Matthew 25:32. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is simply saying that God has always planned that he have a literal, physical kingdom on the earth. 
This is not a second thought. It is not an afterthought. It is not a corrective thought. It has always been God's plan that he have a literal, physical, visible kingdom on earth. And that those who have placed their faith in Christ will be a part of that kingdom. And then he says, these list of things that, that he says, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat, thirsty, you gave me drink, stranger, you invited me in, naked, you clothed me, sick, and you visited me, in prison, you came to me, and then the righteous. So these sheep who inherit the kingdom are righteous. How do you become righteous? Well, it's not on the basis of the works he just listed. So that's one of the major problems with this passage is it looks like works save you. If I, if I find somebody that's hungry and I feed them, thirsty and I give them a drink, naked and I clothe them, in prison I visit them, well then I am declared righteous and I can enter into his kingdom. That's not what he is saying. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you thirsty, give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So, I'll come back in just a second to the question of, is this talking about works salvation? And it is not. The focus here is not how they treated Jesus directly, but how they treated him indirectly. The focus is how they treated the brothers of Jesus directly, and by implication, how they were treating Jesus. So the question is, who are these brothers? He's separating among the nations righteous and unrighteous. So you have believer and unbeliever. And then you have another group of people, the brothers of Jesus. That's the problem here that, that everybody has to address. He's, he, this, it can't be believers that he's talking about because they are the groups that are being separated, believer from unbeliever among the Gentile nations. So who then is left? Who are the brothers of Christ? Well, if it's not among the Gentiles, believer and unbeliever, the only thing that's left reasonably would be Jews. And in particular, Jewish believers, the brothers of Christ. And so during the tribulation, it's going to be pretty tough to live out your faith. Today, it's tough to live out your faith. But you have a reasonably good chance, at least in the Western world, of living out your faith and not dying for it. During the tribulation, you have a reasonably good chance of living out your faith and dying for it. How will you know a true Christian from a false Christian during the tribulation? It would seem that Jesus is saying, how you treat the Jews. I have to be careful here again because I do not want to hint at a works salvation. Works are not how we get saved. But works can be and should be an evidence of where we stand. Am I in the faith or out of the faith? Works should display that. Now at this time, that's not always the case. 
And so you don't always know whether a person is a Christian or not by how they're living their life. One of the reasons for that, quite simply, is because Jesus tells us in, in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you do not abide in me, then there will be no evidence that you're a Christian. When he says there will be, your life will not bear fruit. And so we know as Christians, if, I, if we are not abiding in Christ, there will be no outward evidence that we belong to him. And we also know that just because somebody is feeding the hungry giving drink to the thirsty, visiting those in prison, we would not presume to think today that makes you a Christian. Oh, that's a Christian because they're going to the jail and visiting prisoners. We know that would not be true. That is not what makes you a Christian. But in the tribulation, I have to wonder if the cost of following Christ will be so great that it will be a time of greater clarity, of black and white, of who belongs to Jesus and who doesn't. We see that beginning to happen now, I believe, where it's becoming clearer and clearer who truly belongs to Jesus. That is going to become absolutely the case, it would seem, during the tribulation. There will not be any misunderstanding who belongs to Jesus and who doesn't belong to Jesus. And one of the ways that that will be made crystal clear is how the believing Gentiles treat Jews during the tribulation. Because they will, again, be the most persecuted people on the earth. They've all, they have been for the last 3,000 years. It will be especially true during the tribulation where Satan will be doing everything he can to exterminate, to annihilate all Jews on the earth. We know why? Because of what Jesus said at the end of chapter 23, that when he comes again, it will be because Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Satan is trying to thwart the second coming of Jesus. So Jesus identifies with these believing Jews. And what a person does to them in the tribulation, they are doing to Jesus. That would still be true today, by the way. What a person does to a Christian today, they are doing to Christ. You remember that Paul was a believing Jew. I'm sorry, an unbelieving Jew persecuting believing Jews. And Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Why are you persecuting me? Paul was not persecuting Unbelieve, I'm sorry, he was not persecuting believing Gentiles. He was persecuting believing Jews. And Jesus said, you are persecuting me. I think that situation in Acts parallels what Jesus is saying here on the Olivet Discourse concerning the tribulation. Just as Paul was unknowingly in persecuting believing Jews, persecuting Jesus... Jesus is saying that will again be the case in the tribulation. That to persecute a believing Jew is to persecute Jesus. And that will be a great revealer that you do not belong to him. Even as Paul or Saul of Tarsus did not belong to Jesus when he was persecuting believing Jews. Do works save? Absolutely not. 
For many of us, some of the first verses we memorized um, going to Sunday school would have been Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Those verses say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. And by the way, that that is not a reference to the faith. Faith is in the feminine, that is in the neuter. It's referring to both grace and faith, or in other words, salvation. Salvation is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Salvation has nothing to do with our works. That's pretty clear. Also in Galatians, I'm going backwards here. In Galatians, Paul speaks, chapter 2, verse 16, to the same issue. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. In chapter 3, verse 11 of Galatians, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. And then in Romans chapter 3, Paul again is crystal clear on this subject. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Absolutely impossible for a person's good works to save him. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. Our righteousness, however much righteousness we may think that we have, it does not measure up to the righteousness of God. We fall short. And the wages of sin has been, always will be, death. We are sinners, born sinners, who sin, and we deserve death. The only way to be saved is for God's justice and holiness to be satisfied. And it is impossible for you and I to satisfy God's justice, holiness, and righteousness. The only one that can do that is one who is himself holy and righteous, and that is Jesus. And that's why he so willingly and freely died on our behalf, taking our death, dying as a substitute for you and I, so that what God requires of us would be completely satisfied or propitiated. If you look a little further in Romans chapter 3, it says in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, not works, as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in His blood. Huge word, propitiation in His blood through faith. Propitiation is just a funny word that sounds like you're spitting as you say it. That simply means that God has been satisfied. In the, in the um, Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, 
which was nothing more than a box. But in the box was the law, a copy of the Ten Commandments. And then on the top of the box, the lid was called the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat were two cherubs, cherubim, with their angels spread, with their wings spread, and it was also referred to as the throne of God. Once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, on the lid of the ark. And when doing so, all the sins of the previous year were forgiven. It was a picture of what Jesus would later do. That the only way for the mercy to be extended would, is through blood to come in between us and God's mercy so that the mercy could be dispensed upon us. And the only way for our sin, because of the enormity of it, to ever be paid for and for God's holiness and righteousness and justice to be satisfied would be for Jesus to intervene on our behalf, as only, only He could. And in doing so, He propitiated God. And now, through faith in Christ alone, and only in faith, can a person be saved from his sin, saved from judgment and the wrath of God, and, be, and receive eternal life. So, I hope this is not even a question for you. Your right standing before God is only on the basis of Jesus Christ, the only one who is righteous. Our hope is only in Jesus, absolutely not with ourselves. We trust solely in Jesus alone. Now, it should not be lost on us that in this passage, Jesus is doing the judging. Again, at the great white throne judgment, that would seem to be God the Father. But on this judgment, judging between saved and lost, Jesus is the judge. And it is a severe judgment. Going back to our text, Verse 41, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Wow. Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus, who is love is saying, go to the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This eternal fire, the lake of fire, was not prepared for mankind. It was prepared for Satan. But because of our sin, we will go there too, unless we place our faith in Jesus Christ. I was hungry, you did not give me anything to eat. Thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. And he goes through the whole list. Verse 45, Then he will answer them saying, Truly, I say to you, 
to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Same group of people. It would seem that he's talking about the believing Jews, his brothers. And now verse 46. And these, those on his left, the unbelieving Gentiles at the time of his return to the earth to establish his kingdom, these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Jesus loves us. No one loves us more than Jesus does. God so loved the world that it gave his son that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And it was God the Son who gave himself up willingly for us. No one can accuse God of not loving us. But this same God who is love says without qualification, there is a lake of fire. There is eternal punishment. A place of unclenching torment. It is not up to me to pick and choose which doctrines I like and to set aside the ones I don't like. We all like the doctrine of heaven. And we should be very uncomfortable with the doctrine of hell. But it's not up to us to say, I choose heaven and I reject the doctrine of hell. Is that really going to change anything? When I was in Bible college taking a, a theology class, I remember the prof made us buy these little hard-covered brown Bibles with a translation that was no longer being published anymore. And he said, I want you to have only this Bible for my class because I want you to mark up every passage that I'm going to make reference to that supports a specific doctrine. And I would distinctly remember, still, all these years later, I think I was 20, 21 years old, and we came to this verse, and he said, mark it up. Because this verse is, is the one verse that absolutely shuts the door, slams the door shut on the thought that all people will be saved. If you believe, he said to us, in eternal life, you must believe in eternal punishment. They both occur in the same verse. This is the only place in the Bible where you see both truths, eternal life and eternal punishment, put in the exact same verse. None of us would deny the doctrine of eternal life. Many Christians deny the doctrine of eternal punishment. You have no good biblical grounds for doing so, especially because of this verse. But aren't there verses that would make it seem that all will be saved? Let me go to the one that I think would be the most convincing. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, this paragraph beginning in verse 12 to 21 um, is extremely important. 
I'm going to jump into the middle of the paragraph, second half of the paragraph in verse 18. It says, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. And we would all agree. Paul's argument is, Adam sinned. We were all in Adam. His sin, his transgression, his death, we all inherit. And so, Adam's sin became our condemnation. All men die because of Adam's sin. So through one transgression, condemnation to all men, and all means all. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now if all means all, in the first all, all men die. All men are condemned. Then all has to mean all in the second all. Justification of life for all men. Now that's a problem. Because it sure sounds like all people will be saved. Just as surely as all people will die, just as surely all people will be saved. Justification of life to all men. In my mind... The universalist, the person who says that all will eventually be saved, this would be the verse to go to. If I were a universalist, this would be the verse I would go to. But I want us to back up and see what Paul says in verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, and this is the key, much more those who receive the gift. Righteousness, the gift of righteousness will reign in life. So it is true. This passage says Jesus died for all. For everybody that is under the sentence of death, Jesus died for them. This is a great passage that defends unlimited atonement. All men die. Jesus died for all men that all might receive the justification of life. But this is not a passage that defends universalism. See, there's one ditch, Jesus only died for some. There's the other ditch, all are going to go to heaven when they die. In between is that place of tension. And even though all sin has been paid for, what Jesus did is a gift that's being offered. And the gift must be received. And if the gift is not received, then what Jesus did is not applied. It's as simple as that. Jesus died for all. And all could be saved. It is possible for all to be saved because of what Jesus did. But all will not be saved because there is a gift that must be received. Why is the punishment eternal. So, okay, Charlie, I get it. 
there is going to be a separation between all the Gentiles when Jesus returns to this earth. The sheep, the saved, the righteous will be put on his right. The unsaved will be put on his left. Those on his right will enter into eternal life. Those on his left will enter into eternal punishment. I get it. But honestly, doesn't it seem a bit too much? A bit extreme? I mean, if you take the longest lifespan on earth... 105, 110 years. And that person's going to be punished for eternity? How is that just? How is that righteous? What if a person lives 20 years, 30 years? We're still talking about eternity. How is it just for a loving and just God to punish somebody for all, all Eternity. Once again, be very careful here. Don't allow your sense of morality to trump God's. No one is more righteous. No one is more just. No one is more loving than God is. And I do not, nobody fully understands this. It hasn't been explained to us. I have some thoughts on it that I'm more than willing to share with you in a second. But it's not, it doesn't matter what my thoughts are. My thoughts have to begin and end with what God says. And God says He is a holy and righteous and just God. He is a God who is love. And He will do what is right. And in His mind, this is not excessive. This is the right thing, not an extreme thing. I came across somebody was sharing their thoughts on this, and I thought, well, that's an interesting observation. The parable in Luke where Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus and how they're both dead and they're communicating to each other. And the rich man is saying, have Lazarus go back and tell everybody how bad it is. Have somebody go back. They'll, if, somebody, if he were to rise from the dead, and Jesus says, even if somebody were to rise from the dead, they wouldn't believe. But one thing that I never had thought about, this writer pointed out, is the rich man who is in torment. He says, this fire is tormenting me. He never says, it's not right. He never says, I don't deserve this. He seems to be aware, he is conscious of the fact that he is getting exactly what he deserves. He doesn't ask to be taken out of it. He doesn't accuse God of being unjust. There seems to be a, a resignation that this is exactly what is owed him. All sin, this is what we don't get is against the character and person of God. When David sinned in having Uriah killed and adultery with Bathsheba, and God convicted him, he said in that psalm, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now we know he had sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, their family, their friends, 
but he knew that ultimately his sin was against God. God is one. You can't parcel out his attributes and say, well, when you sin, you sin only against his holiness or only against his righteousness. When you sin against God, you sin against everything that he is. We understand this. When you're sinned against, you know that it is much bigger than the infraction itself. The Funk family, I've talked about this before, Patsy's family, they've, they've tried to keep as a secret um, until all nine brothers had died, Patsy's dad and his eight brothers, who burned down the house. Because um, they did. Three, all the boys were out working in the field, but the three youngest were at the house. They were too young to work. And they went outside, and on a windy day, they piled up some leaves next to the house, and they struck a match, and they burned the house down. And the house, and this fire spread, and apparently it burned the barn down as well. So now you got nine kids and no home. And so for all their lives, um, they... They refused to say who did it. Two of the brothers are still living, but now it's coming out that Patsy's dad was at least one of the three. And I've heard different stories say that even though he was the youngest of the three, he was the one who actually lit the match and burned the house down. Now, he was two or three years old. Could he possibly pay for what he's done? See, the sin is bigger than him. And our sin is bigger than us. We don't realize this. Our sin is so great that we cannot remedy it. Any more than a three-year-old can remedy the house just got burned down. And it's more than just a house being burned down. It's a home. It's memories. It's photographs. Heirlooms. It's all gone. You can rebuild the house, but the heirlooms are gone. The photos are gone. It's bigger than any person could possibly fix and restore. And so is our sin. I believe that we have, we cannot accept the doctrine of eternal punishment because, not because we have too high a view of God's love, but because we have too low a view of our sin and of our God. We have a low estimation of sin and a low estimation of God. All sin impacts God eternally and infinitely. That three-year-old cannot begin to comprehend at three years old the magnitude of what he did. And I cannot begin to comprehend the magnitude of my sin against God. But because God is not only holy and righteous and just, but he is also eternal and infinite. The smallest sin has an infinite impact upon our infinite God. The most temporal, brief sin has an eternal impact upon our eternal God. 
Sin impacts God as He is. And it impacts Him in His eternality and in His infinitude. We cannot think that because sin is small and temporary for us, that it is the same for God. If we were to be brought into lawsuit because of something we did to someone, it is not uncommon for the courts to say, you have to pay for the damages that you've done, and you also have to pay for the emotional harm and damage that you've done. And we go, unbelievable, how is that fair? I mean, the guy, you know, he wrecked his car, but in addition to that, I've got to pay him another million dollars because of the emotional trauma I caused? And we tend to downplay that when we are the one who committed the crime. But the person that's on the other side of the equation, and they're going, you don't know, don't laugh at me. You don't know what this is costing me. It's more than just the car, more than just the house. I will never be able to live the life that I lived before because of what you've done to me. And that's why the courts will say it is right and just to consider more than the actual penalty or the actual crime itself, but the ramifications of all that crime. And sin has eternal, infinite ramifications on an eternal and infinite God. Do you begin to see why it is beyond our capacity to fix it? Because I am finite and I am temporal in this life. How can I fix what is eternal and infinite? I can no more fix it than a three-year-old can build back a new house. All sin, the smallest, most insignificance of, of sins are eternal and infinite in respect to God. And this is why it is beyond our capacity to remedy it. This is why it is so ridiculous for a person to say, I will be judged by my works and a loving God will save me. You have no understanding of what your sin cost God. It is an infinite cost, an eternal cost. You think you can pay for that? You think any amount of good works could pay for what is eternal and infinite. It's foolishness. This is why it requires Jesus, the Son of God, who is himself eternal and infinite, to die in our stead. Only he could, because he's holy and righteous and without sin, but also because he's eternal and infinite. And that's what my sin requires, an eternal, infinite payment. And Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe, a debt that we could never pay. It should humble us. And so when we approach a verse like this that says there is both eternal punishment and eternal life, should sober us, silence us. This verse should shut the door on that heresy that all people will be saved. 
on the heresy that says a loving God would not send people to hell. It is a tragic doctrine with the potential of actually contributing to the damnation of people. It is a false hope, one that should be shunned. But our loving God, Jesus, the only one in the universe who could propitiate the righteousness and holiness of God, has freely and fully done so. And He is the propitiation, as 1 John 2, 2 says, not for our sins only, but for the whole world. And now all that any person needs to do is say, God, I don't begin to understand the magnitude of my sin, but it'd be the height of folly, insanity, to try to minimize what your word says my sin deserves. Jesus, have mercy on me. Thank you for dying for my sin, for rising again from the dead, so that my sin could be washed away, and that I, in placing my faith in you, might receive you, and in receiving you, receiving eternal life. This is all he asks. And may those of us who know the Lord Jesus and have placed our trust in him Recognize that Jesus is always and only our life. And that He is the holy and just and righteous God. And He will always do what is righteous. What is righteous. I'll pray. I thank you, God, that you have not left us in the dark. And when it comes to eternal things, this is not a pop quiz that we need to be afraid of or ever unprepared for. We will, should you not rapture us up to be with you in glory, we will die. And I pray, God, that all that are hearing this message today would humble themselves and not exalt their own thinking above the clear revelation that you have made of what is. Not what we wish would be, but what is. That there is a heaven and there is a hell. And there is a holy God who lovingly has done everything necessary to provide the way of escape. Your word says, is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. And I thank you, God, that we can be ready and alert by simply placing our faith in Jesus to save us from the eternal and infinite consequences of our sin. An eternity of separation from you and an eternity of punishment. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. Thank you, Jesus, that you have fully satisfied the Father. And now, by the grace that's been extended to us and the free gift that's been offered to us, we have the right to be called children of God and that we can enter boldly yet humbly before your throne, the throne of grace, to receive grace and help in our hour of need. In Jesus' name, amen.